This is a Together Church podcast, a place to explore meaning, friendship and faith in Jesus. We'd love you to connect with our community. Find out more at togetherchurch.com.au. Good to see everyone. Uh, so if, if we haven't met, my name's Daniel. I'm uh, one of the pastors at Together Church. And we are in a series uh, about, as Alice mentioned, love and worship and this strange ancient term called idolatry. But I just wanted to start this talk by asking a quick question. Uh, has, has anyone ever had a supernatural spiritual encounter? So, um, you know, like a physical experience a manifestation of the Holy Spirit or of angels or of demonic things. I mean, hands up. Just Does anyone had some type of spiritual encounter? Yeah, yeah. A lot more hands than I thought. Yeah, good. So a lot of us, really common, and, and, uh, and that's kind of what I want to talk about today, a, a very interesting topic. So look, I've had several encounters over my life with the Holy Spirit, uh, with different spirits, you know, some beautiful encounters meeting God in kind of more tangible ways. Uh, that have just been beautiful and heartfelt and quite uh, out of my normal experience. But I've also actually had some experiences of the demonic, which are also really unusual. And so I thought I'd start... Everyone wants a dark story, don't they? So I'll start with a dark story. Um, The dark side, it's more interesting. And uh, so, look, I remember uh, Tim and I travelled to... Tim's not the dark story. Tim and I travelled to uh, Melbourne a bit. We were used to for our business. And Tim hires the Airbnbs because I'm dreadful at that type of detail. I'd probably hire somewhere in the wrong state accidentally. And, uh, and we got there and this beautiful kind of modern uh, apartment, I think owned by two guys that they're away for the weekend, we got to, we got to rent it for a bit and, uh, and it was you know, modern and it had great decor and really interesting, beautiful design in the middle of Melbourne. But um, there were also some kind of strange pictures, it was a little sexual, you know, kind of a big picture of some kind of naked kind of guys and, and these statues which were also kind of a bit, you know, interesting. And uh, it was kind of classy, not my type of classy, but I don't know if I'm classy. It was good. Stopping there. Anyway, that was it. No, I didn't think of anything of it. But I went to bed, and when I woke up, I woke up at about 2, 3 in the morning uh, with this just horrendous nightmare. It was really sexual and really just icky and not the type of dream that I would ever have. And, And as I woke up, I saw this kind of black spirit thing just fly out of the room. And it was just like, <laughs> what a way to wake up, you know? And I remember just thinking, oh, like I was, I was shaken at first, but it didn't take me long. Like I just kind of like, wow, that's just getting, over, getting my head around it. And I was like, but I wasn't, I wasn't afraid. And, and immediately I started to think about uh, Psalm 139. And, and in this psalm it says, even the darkness is not dark to you, for the night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light to you. Now, I don't remember that psalm off by heart, but I do remember that, that darkness is as light to you, and that was going through my head. So I just said a prayer to Jesus. I said, Jesus, you're the king. Protect me f- and this room, and Tim as well. Don't let him have a bedroom. And, uh, and then I went to sleep. I had a beautiful sleep. Didn't worry at all. Woke up the next day, and we did some training. Uh, but I kind of was reflecting on that as I was thinking about this talk. And, and look, I was shaken, but I wasn't afraid because I know who I am, and I know whose I am, I know that I follow Yahweh, I follow Jesus, who is the King of King and Lord of Lords and God of Gods, and therefore there was nothing to be afraid of. Uh, so a quick prayer, and I knew I was fine. And I suppose I just realised that it's not necessarily a usual experience generally. It doesn't happen often. But reflecting on that experience and others like it that I've had, has just made me think, okay, what is the spiritual realm and who is God and what does it mean to follow the King of Kings? So that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Is that Okay. Uh, and so, secular culture does not believe in spiritual forces. Oh, yes, I know what this talk is about. Uh, secular culture... Do- I'm, I'm back on demons. I mean, I got confused. So, secular culture doesn't believe in spiritual forces. And uh, it's, it is in total contrast to different cultures all around us, past cultures and also present cultures. And we've convinced ourselves... This is the fish in water. That's what the slide is for. We've convinced ourselves that the material world is all that exists and that there are no spiritual beings or forces uh, influencing our actions day by day. They don't impact our cities or our systems or our individual lives. So I asked a friend of mine who's an atheist, you know, how do you explain miracles or supernatural experiences 
or healings or serendipitous type of moments, coincidences? And his answer was really interesting. He said, it's easy. They don't happen. Full stop. And, and it's interesting because we, we see what we choose to see. And uh, our culture says that if you can't see it and touch it and feel it and taste it and reproduce it scientifically, then it simply doesn't exist. And uh, I think this thinking infects and, and influences us even as apprentices of Jesus in our culture. Uh, you know, it's called rationalism. Now, like fish in water, now I know why I put that slide up, uh, it, it's like culture and we can't see it because we're immersed in it. And it impacts us as apprentices of Jesus in small but subtle ways, including our imagination of who God is. And this is what I want to talk about today. So the series we're talking about is Eyes That See. And it's a, culture about, uh, it's, a, it's a series about love and culture and worship. And it's a series that started last fortnight that talked about the fact that we all worship someone or something, even if we're aware of it. I won't even try to pronounce this guy's name because last time I got in trouble. Uh, and, and we're talking about this ancient idea of idolatry where idols aren't just statues, but it's what we put our hope in, what we put our heart in, and what we orientate our lives around more than Jesus. And I looked last week at a few questions that related to these kind of very broad and varied different aspects of our lives. We looked at what do I love so much that it defines me? What do I orientate my life around when no one is watching? What captivates my thinking day in and day out? And what is the functional master of my heart? Because when we discover those things, we look at the idols that shape our lives. And so today I want to talk about uh, what it means to have just one God. We're going to talk about God and this idea of monotheism and the spiritual forces that shape our everyday lives. Uh, But we're going to start with a video, because who doesn't like videos? And uh, this video is from the Bible Project, and it's about the name of God. It's a fantastic series, and I've been listening to it. Thank you, Julia, who pointed it out. And it's been really challenging, and I'm going to share some of what I've learned about Elohim, which is the name of God from the Older Testament But let's shape the foundation of this talk with this short video. Go for it. People think about the story of the Bible. They think of a story about God and humans. But remember, we learned that there's a whole other cast of characters that appears throughout the Bible and plays a really important role. Right. Spiritual beings, angels, demons, and the like. Right. And in the Bible, they inhabit the heavenly realm, which is parallel to our earthly reality and actually overlaps with it. Now, all of these spiritual beings have their own unique characteristics. But here's what's fascinating. The biblical authors have one word that can refer to all the inhabitants of the spiritual realm. In Old Testament Hebrew, the word is Elohim, and in New Testament Greek, it's Theos. But here's the thing. This word gets translated in lots of different ways depending on which being is referred to. Angels, gods with a lowercase g, or even God with a capital G. Wait, so one word can refer to any of these beings? Yeah. It's because Elohim is a category title. It can designate any spiritual being that belongs to the heavenly realm. Okay, a title, not a name. Like the word mom. Yeah, right. The word mom can refer to lots of really different kinds of people, but they all share in common the same role in a family. And then let's say a group of brothers and sisters are talking and one says, hey, it's mom's birthday. They're using the title like it's a name. But it would be clear that they're referring not to any mom, but their mom. Yes, and the same goes for the biblical authors. They called their God Yahweh, which is the name revealed to Moses. But they also sometimes refer to him with the category title Elohim, using it like a name, because they all know who they're referring to. Okay, but don't the biblical authors think that Yahweh is in a class of his own, not like any other? They do, which is why they say things like Yahweh is the Elohim of Elohim. That is, the chief Elohim among all the others. Or they'll say, there's no Elohim beside Yahweh, meaning no other spiritual being compares to him because only he is the ruler and creator of all things. Okay, I'm following, but I thought the Bible taught monotheism, which means there's just one God. Well, the biblical authors are claiming that among all of the spiritual beings out there, only one is the source and creator of all things, including the Elohim. That's biblical monotheism, that one Elohim, Yahweh, is above all other Elohim, that is, the other spiritual beings. Now, with all that said, we are ready to learn more about who these other Elohim are and how they fit into the biblical story. 
Okay, great. So we're going to talk about this term Elohim, which is the Hebrew name for God. So Genesis 1.1, the very first verse in the scriptures, which we call the Bible, in the beginning Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So Elohim is not a name for God. It's a descriptor. It's like a big bucket term that can describe various types of spiritual beings, Okay, which is interesting. And where it gets confusing, as we saw in the video, is when we translate Elohim from Hebrew into English, we end up with this word, God. But Elohim is used in many different forms, sometimes to describe Yahweh, the God of Israel, and sometimes to describe the many gods of Babylon or or everyone else that we hear. And this is where we get a little bit confused. So uh, when we use in English capital G God, we're actually referring to a particular person, okay? We're referring to the God, the Judeo-Christian God, uh, the God who's specific and all-powerful. There is one God above all gods. He's loving. He's relational. He came to earth in the person of Jesus. He died. He rose again and promised a second coming. Like, it's a very specific God that we're talking about, okay? It's a person, like a name, like, like mom, as the, as the video said, all right? Um, but little G-God is for all the gods, and it's actually the same word. It just depends on the context in which we see it in the Scriptures. Now, I don't speak Hebrew, and I don't, you know, I don't think you need to know these things generally, but there's some interesting things that I've learned through this that are worth sharing and that relate to us today. And you see the little g, Elohim, you know, God, which, well, Elohim is the same word, but we translate it as gods uh, or spiritual beings or demigods. Uh, they're the pantheon, pantheon of gods, the Babylonian gods, the Roman gods, etc., etc. So again, like mum and dad, Elohim is not a name, but a descriptor for a number of spiritual beings, but can relate to the God we worship. And uh, what's interesting is in Hebrew, uh, they talk about Yahweh Elohim. So Yahweh, if you, if you know a bit about the, the story of Moses, is that Moses kind of saw a burning bush and God appeared to Moses. Uh, and, and Moses says, what's your name? And uh, this is where we get the word Yahweh, which really means I am what I am or I will be what I will be. It's like it's not really a name. It's like this mystor- mysterious name. Uh, and, and the Israelite people then called their God Yahweh. So when they say Yahweh Elohim, they refer to the God of Israel. When they refer to Elohim, it's all these other gods. So in terms of how this makes an impact, it's a paradigm shift. What has been for me, Julia said, there's a paradigm shift if you watch this video. And I watched it. I'm like, well, that is a paradigm shift. So I'm assuming that some of you will find this a little bit challenging potentially because we believe in one God, right? Yeah? We're monotheists. And yet, if there's one God, are there other gods? Are there other spiritual beings? Are there other demigods uh, or other Elohim, which is what the term in Hebrew means? Uh, And so the biblical imagination of God is that there's one, but it's also that, so that it's that there is the Elohim, the Yahweh Elohim, the God who above is above all gods, the creator of heaven and earth, the source and ruler of all beings. God is so distinct and so different that there is only one God. And yet that doesn't mean in the scriptures that there are not other spiritual forces or spiritual beings. Obviously, we know of angels and demons, but there are also more, kind of these demigods, which the Hebrew authors talk about all the time. And they impact human behavior. They influence our systems, our governments, our cities, and they shape the way in which we live. Deuteronomy 10, 17 says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Now, how can you have a God of gods if there are no other little g gods? Now, of course, we can say, look, it was metaphorical, that God is real and it's just like hyperbole. But if you think about it, it's not a great compliment. If you were to say, our God is the great God, the God above unicorns and leprechauns and little goblins, Like, it's not really a compliment, is it? Like, it doesn't seem that the Hebrew authors actually thought they were kind of making like a lighthearted, this is the God of imaginary things. They had a sense that there are other spiritual beings shaping 
the life around them. And there's lots of biblical evidence for that. Uh, so in Hebrew, we look at the same passage, Deuteronomy 10 to 17. It says, uh, just this one word in Hebrew, for, for Yahweh, okay, that's the name that Moses received from God, but Yahweh is Elohim of Elohim. He's the God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the great Elohim, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. In other words, God is the God above all gods. He is one. He is holy. He is the creator. And nothing compares. But what it's not saying is that there are no other spiritual forces that shape our lives. Do you follow? And that's quite a mind shift for some of us. When we think about one God, some of us, At least I haven't always thought about God above the other beings. I've thought of just, there's God, Zippo. Does that make sense? I know there's angels and demons, but I kind of don't just put them in a weird category and say that's the strange stuff. I know. See, we all do this, don't we? All right, Exodus 20, 2 to 4. Now, this this is a really foundational scripture. This is the first commandment that was given to Moses, okay? So, I am the Lord, your Elohim. Who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other Elohim but me. Again, we see this idea. There is the Lord, the Elohim, who is, and we shall not worship the other little ones, the other spiritual forces. And, And so we're commanded to worship one God, not many gods, but there are spiritual forces that shape our lives. And this is such a big mind shift. For some of us as Christians, and particularly in the Western world, which does not believe in spirits whatsoever at all. Uh, So let's look at monotheism. Okay, so this is the definition of monotheism in the dictionary. Okay, the the belief or doctrine that there is only one God. Okay, monotheism is is radically different from all the other religions uh, that came before Christianity and Judaism. Uh, which believed in a pantheon of gods, like uh, if you know of Rome, you know Zeus and Neptune, you know Apollo and Diana, like just hundreds and hundreds of gods that were worshipped that had names and they all had personalities and you interacted with them. Okay, that's the, the versus that you have monotheism, the belief in one god. Or in the secular West, you have the belief in no gods, that they don't exist. You can believe in it if you want, but it's a bit like a leprechaun. Okay? They're the kind of two options. And then right in the middle is this monotheism, which is radically different, but that does deeply shape our worldview, even in secularism, because we came from the Christian worldview. And I want to talk about how we've shifted. The, the question is, is this dictionary.com definition of monotheism correct? Is it accurate and is it what we see in Scripture? Because if you'd asked me a few months ago, I probably would have said, yeah, of course it is. But I'm not so sure. So Tim Mackey from the Bible Project uh, has been really helpful in some of my thinking around this. And he says, the idea that there is one God and no spiritual deities except for God is deeply unbiblical. It's a product of Western rationalism and it is not found in the Bible. <laughs> oh, this is challenging. All right. So, so this is his definition of monotheism, okay? The belief that there is one supreme Elohim, creator and ruler, who has no rivals among all other Elohim, Yahweh, the God of Israel. So what you have here, and it's important, you have this idea that there is only one God. We are monotheists, okay? But God is so different. He's the God above all gods. He's powerful and mighty and awesome in a completely different category, Yahweh Elohim. And yet, it doesn't mean that there are no forces that shape our lives every day, angels, demons, dark forces, etc., that God is above them all, but we shouldn't pretend that there is nothing else. And that's a difference, especially in how we live. And it makes a difference in how we interact with one another and how we interact with who God is. So, uh, how do these ideas shape us? I mean, firstly, again, going back to culture, because we, we are swimming in a culture and the culture is shaped by science and views of science and scientific rationalism and materialism. Now, those are big words. All they mean is we basically don't believe there is a spiritual realm. If you can't see it, if you can't reproduce it, touch it, smell it, feel it, it is not real. You can believe in it, but it isn't truth. And that is, that is the foundational assumption, and it is a, it's a belief. 
if you go through, I won't go through the philosophy, but if you look at the philosophy of science, it, everything is founded on dogma. It's founded on a belief, and that's the belief, that if you can't see it and reproduce it, it don't exist, and we build our whole worldview based on that faith. Okay? And so that, that's kind of very different than the Christian worldview. And this is where we kind of come into this kind of tension when we live uh, and breathe this kind of cultural narrative, and yet we have this belief in a God, and hopefully the God. So, look, science is fantastic. I'm not anti-science, but it's not great at explaining why we exist. It's awesome explaining how things work. The narrative that we're meaningless dust in a meaningless universe is not very inspiring to many people, okay? And, and the idea that there's nothing else except for what you see, touch, smell, feel, people don't really believe that because they're searching for deeper meaning. Uh, if they really believed that, they would just find their meaning and purpose in material things, what they could buy and what they could spend. And that's why materialism, consumerism, is the foundation kind of religion that comes out of science. There's a lot of words. I'm sorry if it's a bit explanatory, but I get excited. Okay, so, so there are consequences for believing that there are no spiritual things, but we live and breathe that culture, and we can't even see it anymore. And we struggle with this idea that there is a world of angels and demons and Elohim that shape us behind the material world that we can't see or touch or feel, but that somehow shape us. And yet that's what the Bible is trying to say, and it's important that we interact with this. Not in a weird way, but in a way that shapes us helpfully. And so what if the biblical authors are right? This is my question, okay? What if there is one God who has ultimate power over all the spiritual beings... But alongside, there are dark and good forces, these are the dark ones, that shape our everyday realities, that interact with us, and that lie behind the material things and the material world that we experience day by day. You know, what if this was true, that the scriptures were right, and actually that science is not the only thing that there is? That would impact us, wouldn't it, as believers and apprentices of Jesus? Uh, especially living in a world which only sees the material things. It would impact how we understand greed and violence and shame and anxiety and consumerism and environment. It would impact the way in which we engaged in the world at large. Make sense? All right. So let's pause for a minute, as we always do, and just reflect <laughs> on these really strange ideas that I've just shared. Uh, and this is what Tim Mackey said, again, from the Bible Project. The temptation in the West is to think there is no spiritual realm influencing our affairs. So how do you sit with this? And are your views shaped more by the Word of God or by the culture that we live in? Just reflect in silence, and I'm going to have a drink. So this talk's called Just One, and we're going to talk about something called the Shema, which is another extremely important scripture uh, in the Older Testament from Deuteronomy 6.4. Uh, Shema is an, a Jewish word that means here, which is obviously you'll see from the passage that it starts with the word here. And the Shema is one of the most important passages to the Jewish people. They recite it twice a day in their daily prayers. They teach it to their children to pray at night time. Uh, it shapes the foundation of what it means to be a people who believe in one God. So let's read this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and with all of your strength. If we look at the word uh, Elohim in this passage, the Hebrew word for God, hear, O Israel, Yahweh Elohim is Yahweh alone. Love Yahweh Elohim with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. This is a proclamation that there is one God over every part of life, every aspect of life. There is one maker, there is one creator, and only one person we should give our allegiance to, not just any Elohim, but the Elohim of Elohims, Yahweh Elohim. Does that make sense? This is what the Jewish people proclaim, and our faith is based on this proclamation. But what, this, uh, what the Shema does not do is say that there are no other spiritual beings. And this is where we've jumped way too far in the Western world 
and we've just mixed our faith with scientific rationalism. So for a Christian, the invitation to stop worshipping lesser gods uh, is about submitting all of our life to, to Yahweh, Jesus, for us as Christians. Michael Ward will talk more about uh, what Jesus says in this space next fortnight. But, uh, but it's not a proclamation that there are no other spiritual forces that shape our lives. So let's go back for context and look at what it looked like to be a person who lived in Canaan 3,000 years ago, a long, long time ago, when these passages were shaped. Okay, To understand these scriptures, you must understand the pagan or the Canaanite worldview, the, the people that the Jew, Jewish nation lived around and were shaped by. So people believed that there were many gods, many Elohim, uh, and many spiritual beings influencing everything from family to work to war, to crops, to health. There were little gods, little deities, little spiritual forces shaping almost every aspect of life. And these gods were capricious. They needed appeasing. There was a god for every different aspect of life. Uh, and they had names. And their whole world was saturated by these statues, these idols, and these, these religious practices. And people worshipped these idols like little people. Like they would dress them up and they would kiss them and they would bow and talk to them and pat them on the head. They would pray for them. And through these idols, as I mentioned last fortnight, they would seek to connect with Elohim. They would try to connect through the pieces of wood with deep spiritual forces that would bless their lives and shape their lives. And this is what idolatry is about. Okay, And so on a typical day, imagine you'd wake up, you'd get out of your, I don't know, your hut or something like that, and you would go to the family idol and you'd kiss it or, I don't know, burn some incense and pray a little blessing to try to reach the Elohim, the spiritual force behind it, to bless your family because it's your family God. And then you'd get up and maybe you'd have to walk through the forest and you didn't want to scare the forest gods because they could be scary, so you'd like ring a bell or something. And then you'd go to work and, and you know, maybe you'd leave some fruit. You see this in Balinese cultures, in Indonesian cultures, in, in Hindu cultures. You'd leave some type of food and, and you'd appease those gods and hope you could get a good crop. Uh, and then maybe you'd sacrifice the meat for the rain and for the, for the fruitfulness. And then maybe you'd bow down to a wooden statue as you cross the river so that the river gods wouldn't get you. Uh, you'd have gods and sacrifices to prevent war and, and to prevent the plague. Does that make sense? Like there's gods everywhere. And your whole life is kind of surrounded by idol worship, worshipping the many, Elohim. And this is where it was very superstitious, this type of religion. And it still is today. Uh, and people constantly worry if they've appeased the right God. Something goes wrong. I'm like, oh, which God did I not appease? You know, Did I not leave enough fruit or did I not do the right worship or did I not do the right incense? Like, You just never know because God doesn't love you and God isn't personal. There's just gods everywhere and you just have to get the right ones right. Do you follow? So that is the worldview that the Shema is written to. And then you end up with Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord is one. One Yahweh, Elohim, over the trees, over the land, over the forests, over the crops, over my family, over war, over sickness. I don't have to worship hundreds and millions of gods. There is only one God, and he loves us, and he chose us, and he is over all things. The Shema is not about there's one God as much as it's a proclamation that there is one God for all of life, and every aspect of our life is to be submitted and shaped and oriented around this God. It's actually a different type of idea than we've had in the Western world. So monotheism is not just about the fact that there's one true God. It's about the fact that all of our life is to be interconnected by our faith and that every aspect of our life is to be given to this one God who makes sense out of everything. The God of work is the same as the God of children. And he's the same God as the God of like, money and the same God of my sexuality. Like, and then we need to orientate all of our life under one God which is what the Shema is really about. And that God for us is Jesus, of course. And I'll talk about Jesus soon. It's an interesting idea. It's a challenge for us. It shapes what we mean by oneness. Let me go back to Psalm 115 that I spoke about last fortnight. So why do the nations say, where is their Elohim? Yahweh Elohim is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. But their idols are made of silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths that can't speak, eyes that can't see, they can't walk, etc., etc. Those who worship them will become like them. We talked about this last fortnight. So, so in this passage, the Old Testament psalmist is kind of making fun of this idea of idols, right? 
You know, saying you, they're not idols, like they're not gods, they're just pieces of wood. And, and you kind of bow down to those pieces of wood, but they're not gods, they're not Elohim, they, they're, they can't see, they can't smell, they can't touch, they're inanimate. Like, so that's what the psalmist is saying. Uh, and we believe in that in the Western world, surely. I mean, we'd be like, of course, it's just a piece of wood, you chopped it down from a tree, it's not a real god, right? But then you've got to flip a bit further the other way, and realize that the Hebrew worldview wasn't saying, but there aren't spiritual forces. Like, there aren't not spiritual forces. When you bow down to a statue and try to access an Elohim as a result of your worship of that idol, you're deeply engaging with dark forces that can shape you and impact your life. Does that make sense? It's not saying that there aren't spiritual forces. It's just saying the reality is that piece of wood is a piece of wood, but what you do through it is something that matters. And that's why the second commandment is do not worship idols. Because if you do, you're not worshipping Yahweh, Elohim. Now, there's heaps of theology, way more than I normally give, but I just felt like it was really important to frame this theologically in order to talk about how it impacts our lives today. Because it is important. My main point really is that there, there is power in what we worship and who we worship. And it's important for us to worship the one true God. So I'm just going to look at one more passage of Scripture. And we're going to flip to the New Testament. And this is the term theos, which is very similar to Elohim. The, the, the Scriptures were written in, in uh, Hebrew, in the Old Testament, and then they're written in Greek. So the words are different, okay? Uh, but it's a very similar concept and not quite like our English concept, the way we use it. So, so the word is theos. Uh, and 1 Corinthians 8, 4 to 6 is the last passage. It's really important, okay? The Apostle Paul, who's writing a letter after Jesus died and rose again, he's writing to the church. And he's talking about the Shema, okay? And he's giving nuanced advice to Christians who are wondering, this is a strange question, should I eat meat? that has been sacrificed in the marketplace, all right? But, but it's an important question. Imagine this, okay, you're a Jewish or a, or a Greek convert to, to, to Jesus, and you need to eat, but there's no butchers in Corinth, okay? Any meat you've got to eat, you have to go to the temple, and all the animals have been sacrificed by a pagan priest and blessed to a pagan idol, and then you buy the meat off of them, and you go home and you eat it. And so the Christians and the Jews who are following Jesus are like, well, can we do that? Because we're eating to eat meat means we're eating meat that's been blessed to, a, to a, a lower Elohim. So Paul gives a nuanced answer, which mimics everything we've been looking at so far. Uh, he says that the idols uh, that the meat is sacrificed to, don't worry about it. It's just wood. There's no such thing as idols. Like it's the inanimate. They, have, they don't have eyes. They, don't, they can't walk. They can't talk. Like, don't be stressed. Meat is just meat. Just eat it, okay? But, and this is really interesting, it's a nuanced argument, but he also says, get takeout. Eat at home. Don't eat in the temple. Because if you eat in the temple with others who are worshipping Zeus, and as you worship Zeus, you eat your meat, then it's dangerous. Because while the meat is just meat, to eat meat in the worship of the god of Zeus means that you are dancing with demigods, okay? Do you see? It's nuanced. It's not simply like the materialist worldview. They don't, nothing matters. It's nuanced. And this is where we need to kind of go. This, let's look at this scripture, okay? Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. There you are. There's the Western worldview. And that there is no God but one. There's the Jewish worldview. <laughs> okay. uh, but even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, for whom all things are things, and we exist for him, and one Lord Jesus, by whom all things are all things, and we exist through him. Uh, so again, uh, using the Greek term theos, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no theos, no God, but one. Even if there are so-called little gods, theos, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many theos and many lords, so lords meaning they have authority and dominion in this world, yet there are for us just one, there is only one God and it's Lord Jesus 
in whom all things exist and we exist through him. So Paul is reciting the Shema. He's saying you can eat meat that's been sacrificed because there's no such thing as idols. It's just wood. Meat is meat, don't stress. But there are theos. There are spiritual forces and dark forces. Don't worship them. And don't be in places where you can worship them. Don't eat in a temple. Eat at home. It's really interesting. And the reason we have no fear as Christians, and this is the important bit that Paul adds, is because Jesus is Yahweh who came to earth, died and rose again, defeated all evil forces. There is only one God, Yahweh Elohim, who is Jesus above all the others. And there is absolutely nothing to fear in any way because God is the God of all. You know, the reason I can sleep at night when I wake up and see this weird black thing kind of fly out of my bedroom is because I worship God. I worship Jesus. And there is one God above all gods and nothing we need to fear. But we shouldn't pretend that there is nothing at all. <laughs> and that's where I wanted to go. So this is called biblical monotheism. It's the, and it's very different from our worldview here today. The secular worldview basically says there is no spiritual realm. There are no forces that shape us. Yeah, idols are wood and meat is meat. Full stop. There's no nuance. You see what I mean? And yet, and yet the biblical worldview says something quite different. It was fascinating. I, I read a study by um, a guy called Christian Smith. And he is a sociologist who interviewed thousands of, thousands of teenagers in America who go to church at least once a week. And he tried to work out what type of God did they worship. And it looks nothing like the God of the Bible. Christian Smith, he says this. After this major study, he said that they believe in one God. Okay, American teens, in his study, obviously, they're monotheists. They believe in one God. But this is the God they describe. God is distant. He's not involved in our lives. So you know how we talk about the universe in Australia? It's kind of like that. It's deism. Okay, There's one God, but not really interacting in our lives. Uh, and that God exists to make us feel happy. That's God's role. And whatever makes us feel happy is what is moral to God. That's what he described the teenage God in America to be. Okay? There is a God. He exists to make us happy. And whatever makes me feel happy is morally right to God. It says a lot about sexuality and a whole lot of other areas of money and environment. We're going to talk about that later. Okay? But it's interesting because while it's monotheism, it's nothing like the monotheism of the Older Testament, is it? And, and look, it's easy to point to our American friends and say, oh, that's a bit strange. But honestly, I think it shapes the church in way more ways than we think in the Western world as well. I think in some ways we also have a distorted view of God because of our culture. And, and the question really is, do we really believe that spiritual beings impact our lives through the material world? Do we believe that? Or do we just kind of believe that God's out there, but the stuff that we do day by day is pretty separate and God's not really involved? Can you see what I mean? Like it's a dilemma for us in the West. And here's my last example, which I found fascinating. As I was writing this talk, I was flicking through the news, okay, on the ABC News, and, uh, and I read that Dark Mofo is on again. Okay, so this is the picture that was in the news feed. Okay, there's Dark Mofo. It's just a local art celebration in our city. Okay, and uh, this news feed, this, this picture here, this kind of, you know, not very kind of churchy-like picture, is um, of an ogre-ogre ceremony. So what happens is, I think David Walsh, you know, brought in this ceremony from Bali. I don't know much about this ceremony. All I know from uh, Google is that it's a Balinese Hindu ceremony that worships Hindu gods. Okay, so we have this kind of paper mache god, uh, and and all, you know, thousands of us in Hobart write our fears and our anxiety and our worries down. We put them in the ogre-ogre, and then we burn it at the end of like dark mofo, and we call it art. It's awesome. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's kind of, we've seen this, okay? What's interesting is in Australia, and this is kind of where my mind was ticking, in Australia, we look at this and we get involved in this festival and we don't even see that it's a spiritual activity. We call it art when we, when we burn our fears to a pagan god, collectively celebrated with fire and music, we don't even realize that it kind of could be spiritual because we are so blinded by this idea that the world is material. Like, and, and an example, my, my daughter Naomi, when she was in year two, like a tiny little girl, maybe year three, 
Uh, she came home one day and said, oh, I don't know if I'm meant to do this, but um, our teacher got the whole class to write our worries and fears and anxieties down, and she's then going to take it and burn it uh, in, in dark mofo to, to this ogre ogre. Is that okay? <laughs> Public school. And I'm just thinking, it's not, I mean, you're okay, but it's not really okay. Like, I have to sign a thousand forms if I want my child to run around the oval because it's dangerous, and yet... There's no consent form to burning my fears to a pagan god because we don't believe it means anything because there are no Elohim. Can you see? It, it, it infects our thinking and we really struggle to see the spiritual realm in the way uh, that we live day by day. So I suppose my question when I look at this uh, is just what would the biblical authors have thought about our worship at Dark Mofo? And I wonder what their perspectives might be to see a city that does this and doesn't even realise that they might, in some way, be engaging in the spiritual realm. Yeah. Grade four. I knew I'd get that wrong. Grade four. I apologise. Still too young. (laughs) All right. Uh, And so, here are some day-to-day examples uh, that are less kind of extreme than the ogre-ogre. And that of digital technology, again, my favourite topic at the moment because I'm absorbed in it, writing something. But uh, through digital technology, we can worship all the old Elohim of the past. We can worship the Elohim of money and sex and power. Uh, Now, we may not worship our phones, but we can access other forces through our phones, through our devices. And this is where it becomes very personal and like, oh, okay, Uh, so don't shoot me. But um, So we can worship the, the god of sex, can't we? Through our, through our devices by accessing particular videos and images that are simply not uh, honouring of God. And those, uh, if you get completely absorbed in them over time, they become addictive. Uh, they can destroy your view of humanity and they can destroy your, you can make your own sexuality very broken if we use our devices to worship Elohim of sex. Uh, we can worship the Elohim of money. The Bible actually gives this a name. Jesus calls this mammon. It gives a name to this. Uh, We can do it through our phones. We can obsess over the share markets. We can look at Bitcoin and trade, or we can kind of seek online gambling. There are so many ways we can access wealth. Uh, Again, none of it's bad in itself, but if you get totally absorbed and obsessed and it controls your life and it's what you dream about and how you shape everything, it starts to look like something, like worship. Got a power, you know, I need visibility, I need social status, I need likes. I need uh, influence and popularity. You can definitely access that through the internet. And it can totally absorb your worldview. If someone like, unfriends you, you're destroyed for a week. Do you know what I mean? Like, again, none of these things are bad. I'm just saying that they're not just material. And we should open our eyes to that. You can worship gods like the god of body image, uh, of home renovations, of popularity. Basically, any area where we don't submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ can become an idol. Not necessarily, but it can. And again, I'm definitely not saying let's look for demons and forces behind like every stub toe. Like there are Christian traditions that go way overboard, but that's not us as a church community, okay? This is why I'm speaking this message to this community. I don't believe that there's a demon behind everything that we do, and it's a really unhelpful way of looking at the world, but it's also unhelpful to suggest that there is nothing that shapes our lives day by day. So... Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It means there's one God over everything and all aspects of our lives, our children, our phones, our money, our wealth, our recreation, our church gatherings, our screens, our passions. And that is what the Shema is about. This is the the idea of monotheism. And, And ultimately, it's about who do we love most, What do we put our allegiance in most? And who is our greatest priority? As I said last time, it's not how we spend our time completely. It's it's not about how you spend most of your time. It's about who who captures our hearts. And and are our hearts captured by Yahweh Elohim, by Jesus? And, And that shapes the way we make decisions. Or do we let other things shape us? And we just tack on a bit of Jesus at the end, even though... We're not really putting him at the centre. So the reflection I'd like to ask is, is Jesus Lord over every aspect of our lives and what might this look like? And then I'll come into land.
Just pause for a second. I knew this was a long talk, and I'm sorry it's taken a bit long. But this is my last analogy, okay? And I think it's really helpful. Think of your house. Think of your house. You've distracted me, Mims. Think of your life as a house. It's a good movie by that title. And it has different rooms, and in each room of your life, you have different loves, okay? You have a love for children and money and you know, success and health and body image. Uh, I know our lives don't fully work like that, but it's just an analogy, okay? So stick with it. And as apprentices of Jesus, we are not saved by the works that we do, by our own goodness. We're saved by God's grace. We're saved because Jesus died and rose again and defeated all dark forces and then gave us access to healing and forgiveness through his life. But as we die to ourselves and rise again, so as we put our faith in Jesus as a baptized, the scriptures say we die and we rise with Christ. We're saved completely. But then we walk through this process of becoming apprentices of Jesus, which means we're becoming like Jesus. Because we certainly don't, we're not all like Jesus in every aspect of our lives. That's, that's the process of what it means to be an apprentice or a disciple of Jesus. And so we go through this process of dying to ourselves and rising again. The Bible says, repent, change your mind, believe, change your actions again and again and again. And give more and more access of, of our heart, of our houses, of our lives in this analogy to the one true God, Jesus Elohim. And, you know, I think the interesting thing is, you know, maybe at first you just give Jesus some of your time and you go to church services and maybe, I don't know, maybe do some big changes like um, stop drinking so much, you know, or maybe don't swear around your kids, you know, like there's some clear changes that often happen when people follow Jesus. But there's so many parts of our lives that are yet redeemed are still maybe dark or hidden, maybe some doors that are secret in our heart. And we don't want to let those rooms get unlocked to God. Uh, and, and what it means to, to follow the one true God, what monotheism means is that we slowly give God access to all of it. You know, what, if, what if Jesus was to whisper you, you know, Psst, what about that room? <laughs> you know, the one about my ambitions, the one that shapes my dreams. Or, hey, what about, what about that closet? You know, that, that closet... Uh, that one's your wardrobe, you know, and, and how much you store in it. You know, what about, what about that one? The way in which, you know, you kind of love your kids beyond anything and it's not necessarily a good thing. And, and what about that one? That one's your sexuality or that one, that, that one's your kind of, I don't know, your, your consumptive habits. Does that make sense? Like, what, what, what about that one? That one's your technology habits. Like, it's, it's the process, beautiful, the process of, of allowing God into all the rooms of our life over time. It's not to kind of pull us down and say, that's a bad thing. It's to free us. Because when we give the dark parts of our lives to God, we become whole. Every part of our life, we don't have a forest God and an, and an apple God and an, I don't know, a kid's God and a school God and a, a superannuation God. You have one God and your life is whole. And every part of your life gets shaped by your one true love, love and it doesn't become lesser, it becomes more. And the, the, your enjoyment of the things you do in your life become greater, not less, because you're not, you're not worshipping. You're not worshipping through them. You're worshipping God and he's giving you access to enjoy the fullness of life, yet freedom and wholeness and health. Does that make sense? So it's not about taking stuff away. It, it's about the lordship of Christ. Uh, so, so to finish... And to summarize, if I can, I don't know. Do you guys mind clicking the next slide? Uh, what I've been trying to say is that there is only one God. We are monotheists. There is a God in heaven, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Yeah, we'll leave that one. And I love that quote, though. Being a disciple is growing from unbelief to belief in every aspect of your life. Hugh Halter, best definition of discipleship. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is there's a king of God, this one God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and the God of Gods. Uh, but that doesn't mean that there are no spiritual beings that shape us. It doesn't mean that there is only the material world. The Western mindset I've said is that we struggle to see that there are things behind our material lives that influence us. And actually, what if we could see? What if we could actually see the spiritual realities behind the material things we do? 
uh, it actually makes our lives way more interesting and it's beautiful and you can learn to see. You can learn to see the spiritual things behind our day-to-day activities. Uh, you can learn to see them. And the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, basically says that there is one Elohim, Jesus, Lord of all, above everything in all of our life, can and beautifully must be oriented around him. And then it becomes richer and the process is to let go of the little aspects, the little closets in our life so that we can become truly whole. Uh, so Jesus is the Elohim of Elohims. We don't honour him by pretending there is no spiritual realm or no spiritual beings. We honour him by worshipping and trusting in him above all others, the great Elohim. So we're going to have communion. And, you know, I just... It's so beautiful who Jesus is. (laughs) It's so simple. We don't have to compartmentalise our lives. We don't have to, to be worried and anxious about whether we've done the right thing or not because Jesus died and overcame all evil. Uh, all we need to do is just keep looking at that cross and just say, hey, Jesus, please feel the gap between my brokenness and who you are. Open up the different parts of my life. Let me see the next bit that you want to have access to. Change your mind, repent, change your actions, live that out and become free. One person under one God who is the God of all Elohim. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you died and rose again and that you broke your body for us and you poured out your blood that we might live. And thank you that when we share the bread and where we share the cup, we proclaim once more that you are God of all. And I pray that if there are broken areas of our life, if there are spiritual bondages or areas of pain and anxiety, of fear, of worry, if there are things that have their hooks in us that we can't get out of, then I pray in the name of Jesus that you will break them right now and that we will release them to you and that you will free us so that we can worship you as the one and only God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.